From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Names are changing, statues being toppled after the recent protests. How this is playing out at a single park. You know, it was a place where we hung out all year long. It didn't matter. A Chicano activist meets us at Columbus Park. Also, who got PPP loans in Colorado? A new data dump can tell us. Later, an essay from a black Coloradan born in Ethiopia. My dear white friends is addressed to friends who think because of her family's more recent migration, she is immune to racism. You are my white friends that welcomed me with an open heart when you saw me at the office, grocery store, school. And we remember the man behind this song. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Place names are changing. Statues are being toppled. An outcome of the recent protests over racism and police brutality. Next to go may be Columbus Park in Denver's Sunnyside neighborhood. It's long been known unofficially as La Raza Park. But a city council member has formally requested an official name change. It's a watershed moment for Chicano activist Arturo Bones Rodriguez, and Denverite reporter Esteban Hernandez recently caught up with him at the park in question. And hi, Esteban. Hi, good morning. I want to note that something similar is going on in Pueblo. There, protesters want a statue of Christopher Columbus brought down. But uh, here in Denver, tell us more about Arturo Rodriguez. I know he's been a prominent figure in the Chicano movement. Right. And uh, Rodriguez has been waiting for 50 years to see this name change happen. Uh, He told me about his memories of growing up in the north side and hanging out at the park, which, you know, back in the day used to have a pool that was the center of cultural and community celebrations. You know, it was a place where we hung out all year long. It didn't matter. And there was no pool. You know, we recreated, you know, we would play handball in the pool, play hide and go seek. In the winter, you made igloos. He went on to join uh, Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez in his activist work and later taught Chicano studies at Metro State. Uh, Nowadays, he's still working to educate his neighbors. When I was at the park with him, he walked up to a woman and asked, uh, you know, do you know uh, the history of this park? Did she know the history? She said she knew a little bit of it, yeah. Because it was at the park's pool, I understand, where a clash with police occurred in, I I think, 1981, right? Yeah, so starting a decade uh, decade prior, in 1971, uh, Rodriguez and other residents of the neighborhood would throw a big party every year celebrating when the park became the epicenter of the Chicano community. And 10 years into this tradition, the police said the party was unlawful because they didn't have a permit. Things escalated when protesters allegedly threw rocks and, and bottles at police, who in turn responded with things like tear gas. Which makes me wonder, does Rodriguez see parallels between the Chicano movement of the 1970s and the protests happening now? He does. He sees connections between protesters clashing with police today and how he and others used to clash with police in the early 70s when the city started enforcing uh, the park's curfew. He also says it's uh, full circle as far as young people being the leaders of these uh, movements. 
Okay, so you have this Columbus Park, which has long been known unofficially as La Raza. And I, I want to talk about the meaning of La Raza. I understand it's not meant to be read as its literal translation in this case. Right. La Raza technically translates to the race, but uh, Rodriguez and other community members want the more figurative and inclusive translation to be taken, which is uh, the people. And Rodriguez told me a little bit about the historical debate over that term and the different interpretations of it. We reinvented it, redefined it. We said it must include, number one, for sure the native. It must include all of the other cultures and races which make up our ethnic cultural experience and our racial experience. Now, it wasn't always called Columbus Park officially, right? No, uh, historic maps show the park was called uh, the Northside Playground, uh, but around 1931, Italian-Americans in the community raised uh, $7,500 for park improvements. Uh, Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval, who's been leading the formal process to change the name, says uh, the park likely became Columbus Park because city leaders wanted to honor that community uh, contribution. Okay, but it had been called Northside Playground. Have you heard any pushback from Italian-Americans on the name change? And, you know, I'll say there's a trend of removing Columbus's name from things. I mean, earlier this year, Colorado did away with Columbus Day. Right. Councilwoman Sandoval told me she has received some messages uh, opposing the name change. And and yesterday I spoke briefly with Frank Percy, uh, president of the Italian-American Social Club, uh, the Potenza Lodge. Uh, Now, he told me the change to him feels like people here jumping on the bandwagon of changing names and, and taking down statues across the country. He doesn't think naming the park after Columbus hurts anybody, though he did say he understands He's someone who's who's uh, widely condemned by uh, American Indians. What still has to happen for the name change, Esteban? So uh, the Park Department must review and approve the formal request. Uh, then Councilwoman Sandoval has to collect 300 signatures from the community. Assuming she does, she would go back to the Parks Department and make the case for the name change. Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, no problem. Thank you. That's Denverite's Esteban Hernandez on the pending name change of Columbus Park to officially La Raza Park in Denver's Sunnyside neighborhood. And we want to broaden this discussion now to why we create monuments and who decides which version of history is told and which is ignored. Regis University U.S. history professor Nikki Gonzalez is also a member of the Colorado State Historians Council. And Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. When statues, for instance, are created to honor someone, I think what's often missing is the context around, you know, what that person did or represented. And I suppose that has something to do with the limits of statuary. But beyond that, why do monuments so often lack context, do you think? I think that I often think of statues and monuments as a timestamp of a present moment in the past. Um, They're built by the people and the groups whose voices were the loudest and the most politically and economically powerful at the time. And these are voices that chose to celebrate and memorialize the values that were most important to the groups at the time. I guess you could say that the victors of a certain time and place, often region, get to erect the statues and 
by doing that, they determine the the main public narrative of history, and often that doesn't give a lot of room for for contextual information. Um, it's a, a story that often serves their sense of themselves and of others. And so that means in the process that histories of entire groups and peoples are, are lost and silenced in that. And, you know, that that also kind of challenges that contextual um, narrative as well. So you see them as a time stamp, um, a moment in time. I'm curious how you would answer this question, which has been debated on social media. Are statues and monuments history in and of themselves? Or are they symbols of history? How do you see it as a historian? I see it as a little bit of both. So oh. their history and the fact that they they represent the way that a certain people sees themselves at that particular time in history, and they're, they're symbols as well. Um, it, in erecting a statue or a monument, um, a group of people, they're asserting a, a symbol of who they think they are and who they want to be and who they think the nation is. And often that's a very mythical notion, right? You know, the thought that just occurred to me is that we may see statues toppled and new ones erected and names changed, and that 20, 30, 100 years from now, it may be that another discussion arises that results in another wave of change. Mm -hmm. Should that be something we just get used to? Is this a cycle? Or, or do you see this moment as somewhat finite? Um, I've often been told that historians are terrible predictors of the future. So <laughs> I would say, I'll go on the record as saying, I'll go so far as to say that this, this process will probably continue into the future as we get to, you know, continue to debate our past and continue to add to the inclusive nature of, of our historical narrative. And, you know, I think one of the groups that I'm involved in right now is the Mayor's um, Commission on Renaming Places within the city of Denver. And one of the, you know, in deciding what criteria we're using, they were very clear about we need to think about what's going to last, right? We don't want this, we don't necessarily want this to be, you know, these new places, these new names to be challenged in 50 years. Um, so we want something that's going to last. And I don't know how possible that is, but we're, we're thinking about that in the process anyway. Do you see uh, any commonalities amongst the monuments we have seen toppled in Colorado and the name changes we are seeing called for? Do I see any similarities? Yeah, like a thread in what's been targeted. I, I, yeah, I do. That's an interesting question. So I see a thread of um, groups that have historically been left out of that main public narrative challenging those monuments, such as the Kit Carson statue that was taken down a couple of weeks ago by the city of Denver. Yeah. Um, Almost so anticipatory, you know. Right, right. They were anticipating that that was going to happen because that statue has been challenged for years um, by particularly the American Indian community. And so I see the thread of groups saying, hey, this is not our narrative. So this is a very white kind of whitewashed or um, Eurocentric view, um, very traditional narrative of, and in Colorado, it tends to be that narrative of the American West. So there's a challenging of that, which has gone on in academia for decades, but which is now playing out in 
in very visible ways in our public art and public history memory. We've got folks listening statewide, so I just want to point out that the Kit Carson statue is at the fountain in Denver Civic Center Park, um, indeed taken down by the city. Uh, You say there's a, a long history behind that particular statue, huh? Right. Actually, it's a very interesting story. So, the, the artist was a man named um, Frederick McMoneys, who was internationally acclaimed, so he's very famous. And it was in 1911 when he was commissioned to do the artwork. Um, and he actually, in 1911, wanted to put a very noble-looking um, American Indian warrior on top of that <gasps> statue. And in 1911, the people of Denver, it was such a racist climate at the time, an anti-Indian um, populace that they rebelled, they revolted, and they would not support that. And so in the end, um, the compromise was a statue of Kit Carson. So that's that's the history behind that. That's fascinating. So if you don't meet the challenge head on at the time, it might come up a century later, I suppose. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am curious in particular about Confederate monuments, Mm. because I have read... Of course, the Civil War ended in 1865, but I've read that the timing of when he, when many Confederate statues started going up does not coincide with the end of the Civil War. Just tell us a little bit about that. Oh, sure. So that's a really interesting example. So, um, so like you said, Civil War ended in 1865, and we see, and this has been tracked by the Southern Poverty Law Center, who has tracked um, when these Confederate monuments have been erected. Yeah. And there are really two periods in Amer- American 20th century history when we see spikes in those, the construction of those. One was in the early 1900s, which really extended into the 1920s and 1930s, and that, that's a time when... It coincided with the rise of the second KKK in the South and became very popular in the Midwest and the West. Um, when there's this reassertion of the American, a, a very specific white supremacist American narrative. And then the second spike occurs during the 1950s and 60s. With a, it's a backlash to the civil rights activism of those years. And again, it's this sort of desperate attempt to, to assert this this narrative of the past and civil war in particular um, of, of it's a white supremacist past, right? It's a white supremacist narrative and, and it's a backlash to that activism. So, so do, you, do yeah. you think in that way that many Confederate monuments and statues were a means of intimidation? Absolutely. Intimidation, the creation of this mythical narrative, the perpetuation of this mythical narrative. Exactly. Okay, back to mythical narratives in the American West in particular, because you you said that in a lot of the monuments that we are seeing debated and toppled right now in the West, um, they're, they're often connected to what, maybe this romantic version of the West, of manifest destiny, of westward expansion. Just say a little bit more about that. Sure. So the traditional narrative of American Western history is one of this kind of gradually moving frontier line that separates sort of on the eastern part of that, the eastern side of that frontier line, this Euro-American movement westward to civilize a very uncivilized land. So it's this frontier line that divides savagery from civilization. And in that traditional narrative, which really held until the the 60s, 70s, and and even the 80s when it was outright challenged, um, was 
was one that erased the histories of the people that were already in the West, what would become the American West. So we have the indigenous peoples and the Spaniards and the Mexicans who had settled the Southwest in California. So, um, so a lot of, so yeah, so that's the traditional narrative that is being kind of toppled, right? And so many of the statues and monuments and place names in the American West reflect that traditional narrative, which was also popularized in pop culture, right? With the Western, um, sure. the Western film genre and char- characters like John Wayne. U.S. history professor Nikki Gonzalez is my guest. She's also vice provost, by the way, for diversity and inclusion at Regis University, and she's a member of the Colorado State Historians Council. And we're talking about this moment of reckoning around some of the monuments that we have uh, in our past erected in this country and which are coming down, which are changing. I, I, I think that there are some who fear that their history will be erased, what I have heard you say is that it, it, it's about writing a fuller history, not necessarily erasing history. Do you think that's true? I think that's true, and I think it's not only fuller, but it's correcting some of the, the myths that we've created about our past as well. Is it possible for very flawed people to be memorialized? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's human. Humans are complicated. So many of the, well, in particular, there's an emancipation statue in the East right now, which is, um, it shows Abraham Lincoln with a newly, uh, I guess, recently emancipated um, African-American person. And mm-hmm. that one is under debate right now. Um, but in the in the debate, people are talking about how Lincoln himself was a very complicated person. Yeah. And he so we venerate Lincoln, but at the same time, we're also beginning to acknowledge that he himself was a flawed person. And so, yes, I, I believe so. I think you're right. We can venerate and we can memorialize a, a flawed individual. But again, context is everything. Context is everything. Uh, just in the last few seconds, do you think there should be a kind of statue and monument museum? Like when these things come down, should they be warehoused somewhere with more context? Just a few seconds. As a historian, I would say yes, and then, but, but couched in that context, right? Huh. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, yes. Lovely to speak with you, Professor. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure. Nikki Gonzalez, professor of U.S. history, vice provost for diversity and inclusion at Regis University, again, a member of the Colorado State Historians Council. It's a $700 billion lifeline from the federal government. But just how much of that pandemic relief money actually went to companies here in Colorado? CPR's business reporter Sarah Mulholland is breaking down new data from the Treasury. And Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. So PPP loans, that is money from the payroll protection program. Uh, This is supposed to help businesses with fewer than 500 employees make it through the COVID-19 shutdown. How many loans have been approved and how much money has made its way to Colorado? Well, nationally, the program gave out 4.9 million loans and supported more than 51 million jobs. And um, that's according to the Treasury Department. 
So here in Colorado, a total of 13,385 loans were granted. So the Small Business Administration um, has given out more than $10 billion in loans to businesses in the state. Um, and about 95% of loans in Colorado were for $350,000 or less, um, the data show. So just over 13,000 of these loans in the state. Do we know how many jobs the PPPs helped support here? Yeah, so the programs help support 900,000 jobs in Colorado, uh, and that's according to the Small Business Administration. So here are just a few examples. Okay. Uh, Cast Transportation in Henderson says 148 jobs were saved. The program is credited with saving another 500 jobs at the Navajo Transitional Energy Company in Brookfield and 423 jobs at Southwest Health Systems in Cortez. Um, for transparency, I want to point out that Colorado Public Radio also received a PPP loan. Um, so you can see the list is pretty diverse uh, and wide-ranging, and the numbers are self-reported. Mm. Um, and I should also note that there are more than 680,000 small businesses in Colorado, which is according to the SBA's um, Colorado District Office Director, Francis Padilla, so only a small percentage of businesses in the state actually got a PPP loan. Um, and since they're self-reported, it's hard for us to say exactly how many jobs were saved versus created. But um, that's the data we have. OK, uh, but it is a small percentage indeed of small businesses, but a, a wide variety seem to have gotten help. I do imagine they were varying sizes, though. Yeah, so the data from the Department of the Treasury shows that the companies that were helped go beyond the typical mom and pop retailers and local restaurants that most of us think about when we think of small businesses. So the list includes companies in financial services, technology, construction, manufacturing, um, just about anything you can think of. Uh, and some borrowers really took an immediate hit from the stay-at-home order and mandatory shutdowns. Uh, for example, the Sky Ute Casino Resort in Ignacio, Colorado, took a loan for between 2 and $5 million, um, which saved 288 jobs, according to the data. But other companies took out loans out of what they are calling an abundance of caution. So Advisors Asset Management, which is a financial services firm in Monument, told me the PPP assures their employees are supported through the pandemic. You mentioned earlier, Sarah, that most of the loans in Colorado were for $350,000 or less, like something like 95 percent. What about the others then, the remaining 5 percent who got those bigger loans? So there were 95 loans in Colorado for between 5 and $10 million, which is the maximum amount allowed under the payroll protection program. Um, and many of those larger loans went to familiar businesses like the Colorado Museum of Natural History, Kona Grill, Wendy's, and then some some other companies on there, too. I understand there's still $100 billion in aid available. Uh, based on how it's gone so far, does getting a PPP loan make sense for every company? Just briefly. You know, not necessarily. Um, for some companies that are still closed, particularly in like hospitality, it just doesn't make a sense make sense to take out a loan if you can't reopen. Mm. And then for some businesses, it's just already too late because they couldn't make it through the initial shutdown and they've already closed permanently. Thanks so much for being with us, Sarah. Thank you. CPR business reporter reporter, that is, Sarah Mulholland. She's been tracking PPP loans. And you can see a list of the Colorado companies that got money and the jobs they purport to have saved at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an essay from a listener 
titled My Dear White Friends. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. A reflection now from a listener, Rahim Mulatu of Thornton. She wanted to share her thoughts on America's reckoning with race and justice. Mulatu was born in Ethiopia, grew up in Colorado, and her intended audience is made clear from her essay's title, My Dear White Friends. Before we hear it, a little setup. Mulatu doesn't think many of her white friends understand what's really behind the recent protests. Because... Most of them, they live in their own bubble of, like, you know, the white privileged life. So they would not have a really clear understanding why people are protesting is because of, you know, healthcare, education, you know, safety. But for some people who do not have a you know, background of the history, how black people have been discriminated and the system is designed to discriminate, to hold black people down, they don't have this understanding. Because of her Ethiopian background, she says her white friends don't recognize her as a, quote, typical African-American and think that somehow that makes her immune to racism. I mean, these are my friends I've known for 20 plus years. So this essay is really for them to educate them and to say, hey, I'm one of your friends who goes through this struggle, but you don't understand it because you have accepted me the way they feel safe and comfortable with me. And so here's Mulatu reading her essay for us. My dear white friends, I want to come to you with my raw feelings of pain, anguish, tears, a heavy heart. I want you to feel and see my vulnerability. I plead with you to not disregard or diminish my sorrow. I'm grieving, my dear white friends. You are my white friends that welcomed me with an open heart when you saw me at the office grocery store, library, school, park, church, movie theater, community center, gym, city hall, and restaurant. Even though I could not show you my vulnerability because I didn't want you to think of me as timid or aggressive, I'm carrying years of pain caused by the implicit and explicit bias of discrimination. Unfortunately, To make you feel safe and comfortable, I made sure to stay in the imaginary box you created for me and continue to be an abiding citizen in the system and an institution you chose for me. My dear white friends, you might say I was not there to create those systems and an institution to choke you literally and figuratively. But I ask Where were you when they chose to defend the education system so my neighborhood school was left without support while expected to educate me? Where were you when they left my neighborhoods without grocery stores for miles and filled it with liquor and convenience stores? Where were you when they decided my neighborhood did not need parks, sidewalks, and streetlights that function? My dear white friends, I know you are health conscious. But did you know that I'm stricken with chronic illnesses, which could have been prevented if I was able to access healthy food and medical care? 
Where were you when the police officer who swore to serve and protect all pulled me over and made me pray that I would not die that day? My dear white friends, the education, health, justice, political, economic systems have been putting their knees on my neck, only allowing me the breath needed for mere basic survival. But you chose silence. I beg you, my dear white friends, find it deep in your heart to understand my frustration if you see me cry, scream, and protest peacefully. Do you not agree that I should breathe the same air you breathe? Walk and drive on the streets without fear as you do? Would you not agree that I should receive quality education and good health care? Why should I be denied the same opportunities and promotions you are afforded simply based on the amount of melanin in my skin? My dear white friends, hear me out. I have gifts, talents, passions, hopes, and aspirations as you do. Don't disqualify me because of my skin color. I have great things to offer to our nation. Our differences makes us beautiful, strong, and great. Please do not let adversity lead us to utter destruction. My dear white friends, your silence is blocking my breathing. You are the privileged who must use your privilege for a good cause to unchain and unlock your friends like me who do not have that privilege. Sincerely, your black friend. Rahim Olatu of Thornton with her commentary on breath and melanin and justice. We asked what kind of feedback she's getting since sharing her essay with white friends. She told, uh, told us it's been met with some defensiveness, but mostly it's been enlightening for folks. And you can read Mulatu's essay, My Dear White Friends, later today on the Colorado Matters page at CPR.org. In the early 1900s, a little farming community thrived on the plains east of Denver. There is not much left of Deerfield, Colorado today, but what remains will not be bulldozed. The Black American West Museum has struck a land swap deal with a developer. Here's Daphne Rice Allen. The museum swapped some outline pieces with Clayton Holmes and acquired several, a couple of pieces within the town court so that the Black American West Museum owns about 98-ish percent, 98% of the town core of Deerfield. Restoration of Deerfield, though, really isn't an option. They may do some structural kinds of things, but mostly it's for archaeology. It's to dig, find artifacts, find nails, find pieces of pottery, find bones of the chicken or that kind of thing that will describe what life might have been like or what it looked like, giving more substance to the, the life and times of Deerfield. That is Daphne Rice-Allen, board chair of the Black American West Museum. At one point, Deerfield embodied the dreams of the African-American people who'd homesteaded there. People were very hopeful, and they really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That is Terry Nelson of Denver's Blair Caldwell African-American Research Library. She's one of several experts 
In a documentary about Deerfield called Remnants of a Dream, Charles Knuckles directed the film. You know, a phrase we heard just there struck me that they really felt like they could get away from oppression. Say more about that, like Deerfield as an oasis. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson believed that a generation beyond emancipation, uh, African-Americans had created religious institutions and educational institutions, but now it was time to develop industrial businesses that would provide employment opportunities. Let me just say that O.T. Jackson was the founder of Deerfield. Yes, he was. Originally from Oxford, Ohio. Uh, He came to Colorado in 1877. He settled in Boulder. He was a caterer, a restaurateur, and eventually um, he became involved in Colorado politics. And he wanted a new economic opportunity, a new kind of future. Yes, he followed the teachings of Booker T. Washington, one of the prominent race leaders at the time, uh, who believed that the, the key was a back-to-the-land movement, where the best practices would lie in self-help for blacks, independent self-reliance. And Deerfield was an embodiment of that self-reliance. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson wanted to create a community where African-Americans would cooperate with one another, both in business and civic activities, and create a place where people could have some input and thrive. Because Uh, Let's face it, blacks were systematically excluded from many of the um, public sector uh, systems created by the white majority. It's very interesting. Just from my Jewish perspective, it sounds very much like the intention behind a kibbutz, this idea of being connected to the land and the community as incredibly tight-knit. And this was a time when nationalist movements were... Um, popular. And and Theodore Herschel created the idea that there ought to be a Jewish state around this same time. And for African-Americans, this was the idea that you can empower yourself as a people, that you could really create your own community. So when Deerfield was in its heyday, uh, what was it like for the folks there? Like, what did the community look like? and, And what were the businesses that you'd see? Deerfield thrived for a time from about 1915 to 1920, the zenith of that time really being 1917 to 1920. But there were fairs that would be held in Deerfield, and the governor would come out to award prizes for the most prized fruits and vegetables grown or the best livestock or cattle that was grown. So there were picnics and fishing parties and dancing. There were churches, um, a missionary society. Deerfield was a thriving community. This was a full-time community. This was not like a kind of weekend retreat or something. These were homesteaders. So you had to file a land claim and you had to prove up that land. Therefore, you had to live on the land for a certain number of time, amount of time. You had to document your improvements. And if you met all the government requirements, you then own that land. So there are descendants perhaps today who still have claim to that land. Do you know? Well, one uh, interesting story And this is a typical story of 
the American West and settling the American West is that of the Groves family. And Walker Groves was one of O.T. Jackson's last farmhands, and his sons owned some property in the settlement. But Walker Groves was um, bucking hay one day with a team of mules who ran away from him. And unfortunately, he was um, injured very badly, so badly to the point where he died because he was impaled by the buckrake. And his son uh, refuses to go back to the land that they even owned because, as he puts it, the farm killed my daddy, so I'm never going back to the farm. Oh, my goodness. Just a picture of what life was like at that time. Let's talk about some of the interesting personalities, the notable people who settled along with O.T. Jackson in Deerfield. Who, who stands out? Well, one person that stands out is Dr. Westbrook. Um, Dr. Westbrook was a successful Denver physician. This is Henry Peter Westbrook. That's right. I Dr. Just, Joseph Henry Peter Westbrook. I just learned about him, actually. Isn't this the guy who infiltrated the Klan? He did. He had blonde hair and blue eyes, and he could have passed for white if he wanted to. So what he would do is he would go to Klan meetings, he would listen to what was being proposed by the Klan and go back and report that to members of the black community. Uh, he was quite an interesting fellow. He was uh, at Denver General Hospital for 17 years. He spoke to religious and civic groups all over Denver about equality. Um, he was really quite a fascinating man, not only because he named Deerfield, but he was one of Denver's most prominent African-American citizens. He had named Deerfield. And is it simply that the fields were dear to them? And that is why it's spelled D-E-A-R yeah. and not D-E-E-R, because the idea was that this was such an important effort to these people that it was something that was special, emotional, even spiritual to many of them. And dear. Did they face a lot of discrimination in Colorado, and how did that compare to other parts of the country, would you say? Well, they certainly faced um, some discrimination. Many would argue that it perhaps was not as bad as the kind of discrimination that people would face in the South. Colorado was never a slave state, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination. And it, certainly there was enough discrimination. They felt they needed to get away from it. Absolutely. And that was, O.T. Jackson never really had the idea that he wanted to create a separate community, but he wanted to create a community where African-Americans could have some input with regard to how their lives were governed. But even Jackson would face discrimination as well. Yeah, you talked a little bit about his background. So this is O.T. Jackson, Oliver Toussaint Jackson. Um, he was from Ohio, I think you said. Uh, what drew him to Colorado in the first place? The idea of the promise of the American West is what drove O.T. Jackson to Colorado. A familiar theme for settlers. Absolutely. And he became involved in uh, Democratic Party politics in 1906. And this is a time when many African-Americans were Republicans. The Still, Party of Lincoln. The Party of Lincoln, the Party of Emancipation, the Party of Freedom. But Jackson felt as if by getting politically active, he would have better access to government officials and be better empowered to be able to create some of these initiatives that he wanted to. 
and quite the entrepreneur as well. I mean, beyond Deerfield. Absolutely. Um, Jackson had big ideas. Um, he was someone who first became a caterer. He was a caterer at Chautauqua oh. in Boulder. Um, he managed the, the uh, kitchen facilities there. He owned a couple of restaurants in Boulder. But something that many people may not be aware of was just to the extent of his work in politics. This has been just fascinating for me to learn about. He held a job known as messenger with six different governors for 28 years. He served, you know, both political parties. What was this role, messenger? A gubernatorial messenger conveyed communications, transported documents, and handled confidential and sensitive material, uh, much of which we may do electronically today. But at the turn of the last century, people relied on trusted people to be able to handle these tasks. And Jackson was so well-liked and so trusted that he was reappointed by multiple administrations. But even being that close to state government still did not um, free him from aspects of discrimination. And in one particular um, story stands out. Yeah, tell me of that. Well, in, in 1929, Jackson needed to get some documents to the governor who was staying at the Brown Palace Hotel. And the Brown Palace Hotel, is a, as many people know, is a hotel here in Denver. Yeah, quite fancy, even now. And then it must have just been, you know, a sparkling. Well, Jackson something. went into the hotel. He went to use the elevators and was told that because he was a black man, he would not be able to use the elevator to deliver the documents he needed to to the governor. Jackson said, yes, I am indeed a black man, but since I am a government official, I've been a taxpayer in Colorado for 42 years, I don't see any reason why I can't use a public elevator in dispatching my duties as messenger. He was still refused. So Jackson walked up four flights of stairs, delivered the documents to the governor, walked back down the four flights of stairs, never to return to the Brown Palace Hotel again. Hmm. And he held these duties at the same time that he's trying to make Deerfield thrive. But we know, just based on seeing what Deerfield is today, that it, it did not persevere. What happened? Well, several things happened. And Deerfield was a dry land farming operation. They did not have access to water. It took money to buy water rights. So they started when there was a wet cycle in the Colorado climate. Oh, I see. And they could grow anything during that time, during that wet cycle. And they did. They really thrived, really prospered. But once that wet cycle ended, the water dried up. And then you had the rural depression that started in the early 1920s. Most people think of the Great Depression as when the stock market crashed in 1929. Right. But for many rural communities all across America, the Depression started in the early 20s. Then you've got the Dust Bowl, right? That, that doesn't help. The Dust Bowl was really the, the final, final blow to the colony. What do you feel when you're out there? Just, we have a few seconds left. Uh, you feel the isolation, just how desolate this area is. It's a hard place to live. It's a hard place to live now. 
And in 1910, one can only imagine how hard it would be to live there. And the spirit of the people who, who tried. They were among the most determined people you, you could find because they wanted to create a better life for themselves and for their children. Charles Knuckles directed Remnants of a Dream. We spoke in February. Deerfield is on the National Register of Historic Places and on the Endangered Places list compiled by Colorado Preservation, Inc. And its status is now in progress because of that new land swap deal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This Friday, join Indie 1023 for the debut of MCA Denver's B-Side Music Friday's concert series. Exclusive performances captured on the rooftop of the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver every Friday on our Facebook. And kicking off the summer-long concert series, Wilderness. Join Indy 1023 and MCA Denver this Friday night at 7 and every Friday through the summer on the Indy 1023 Facebook page. The U.S. Air Force Academy recently welcomed its new class. CPR's Dan Boyce was there to see how the pandemic has changed Initiation Day. Initiation Day starts off basic training for the new cadets, with upperclassmen in formal uniforms temporarily playing the role of drill sergeants. Yelling at a group of freshmen as they pile out of a bus pointing them over to sets of blue footprints painted six feet apart on white asphalt. They're inducing a little bit of stress. They're trying to get these basics to react without hesitation. They're trying to get them to follow instructions during a chaotic uh, fog of war, if you will. That's military training instructor, Master Sergeant Michael Walsh. He's standing off to the side as senior cadet Teresa Kozak gives the introductory pep talk. When you put on this uniform, you will represent everything our nation stands for. The freshmen remain nervously at attention on the painted footprints, mostly wearing gym clothes from home and an academy-issued black face mask to limit spread of the coronavirus. That's not the only change this year. Normally, there's a ceremony at the school's Doolittle Hall where parents get to say their goodbyes, but freshman Eric Pfaffenbickler says his parents aren't allowed to even get out of their car to give him a last hug. They're dropping me off completely, so they're not even able to come into the college. Bye, Dad. After the drop-off, cadets are handed that black face mask and marched up to the football team's indoor practice field. They're sent to one of a set of widely spaced tables for medical checks and paperwork, then to the buses, then to the footprints and the shouting upperclassmen. Stop wasting my time! Pfaffenbickler was careful to memorize the seven responses he's allowed to give them. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. Sir, may I make a statement? Sir, may I ask a question? Sir, I do not understand. Sir, I do not know. Let's move! After the haranguing, they receive on the painted footprints. The new cadets are sent running up the so-called core values ramp to the center of campus under the words integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. Six weeks of military training await them on the sprawling academy grounds, all of that also with adjustments for the pandemic. Afterward, they begin their four-year education to be officers in the Air Force or the newly formed U.S. Space Force. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Finally, a country music hall of famer and part-time resident of La Plata County has died. Charlie Daniels, singer-songwriter, bandleader, and fiddler, passed away Monday in Tennessee after suffering a stroke. He was 83. Daniels is best known for his 1979 Grammy-winning hit, you know, this one about the devil in Georgia. (laughs) 
I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul, cause I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet and you're gonna regret, cause I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, rising up your bow and play your fiddle hard. Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Charlie Daniels started out playing bluegrass in his home state of North Carolina before moving to Nashville in 67 to be a session musician. He recorded on Bob Dylan's 1969 album Nashville Skyline as a guitarist and bassist. But Daniels was best known for his blistering fiddle playing. Here he is in the Ken Burns documentary Country Music talking about the instrument. There is no difference between a fiddle and a violin. I went to see it's like Perlman at the Opera House in Nashville, and somebody took me backstage before the show. And I said, hi, Mr. Perlman, I'm Charlie Daniels, I am a fiddle player. He said, we are all fiddle players. So if it's like Perlman is a fiddle player, I'm proud to be associated with the fiddle. Daniels was a familiar face around Durango. He and his wife Hazel owned a home near La Plata Canyon, where they typically spent a couple of months each year after Christmas, playing an occasional gig and snowmobiling with friends from the area. We're about 9,500 feet up the Rocky Mountain snowmobiling with our best friends, Jeannie and Cy, and Colorado, and we're having a ball. And the reason you'll see Hazel in this picture because she's taking the picture. He was never shy about expressing his political and cultural views. Recently, he had a letter to the editor published in the Durango Herald, throwing his support behind a local art gallery and its controversial chief mascot, saying, quote, This sign is a landmark, not an insult, and offends no one. Long may it stand. We should say that more than 5,000 people have signed a petition to bring it down. Daniels was also a strong supporter of the NRA as well as veterans' causes, often performing for troops in the Middle East. He said his favorite place to play was anywhere with a good crowd and a good paycheck. You know, uh, when you write a song, it belongs to you until you record it and put it out for everybody to listen to, and then it belongs to everybody. And some songs, you don't know if they're going to last. This particular song here... We've done it on almost every show we've done since we recorded in 1974. <laughs> we'll leave you with this, Charlie Daniels' guest appearance with the Bardi Wranglers, recorded in 2018 at the historic Bardi Chuck Wagon Dinner Theater north of Durango. This is Colorado Matters. I get up in the morning and I get down in the afternoon like old blue check hound, I like to live around in the shed. I ain't got no money, but I dang sure got it me, cause I ain't asking nobody for nothing, if I can't get it on my own. You don't like the way I'm living. You just leave this long-haired country boy alone. 